Hey, well, once again, welcome to uh, Rockbridge. Glad that y'all are here. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your weekend with us for one hour this weekend together at one church in multiple, multiple locations. So thank you for being here. My name is Matt. Before we get going in part six of this message series called Ezra, uh, The Way Back, I want to invite us to, to pray together. First, I want us to pray for, uh, for one another. These are some of the prayer requests that you have submitted. Uh, people sit next to you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, people that you're praying for outside of our church. So we're going to stand in the gap and just pray for each other, pray for these kind of requests. Maybe one of these resonates with you. I'll invite you to kind of grab it and uh, pray into that as I pray uh, out loud for all of us. And then uh, secondly, it's already Easter season, and and obviously we're fired up about that opportunity, and uh, we're going to resource you starting next week with some tools and some ways to invite some people to come to church that maybe that's the only weekend of the year that they would ever even consider uh, darkening the doors, so to speak, uh, of the church. Church, or they would only, that's the only time they might be open to come to church, or they're looking for a, for a church family, a spiritual family, or they've got questions. Well, we got hope, and everybody uh, runs on hope to one degree or another. So just encourage you to begin thinking about maybe, God, would you let me invite one person, just one person at least, uh, to come to church with me over the Easter weekend, over the Easter season, and then just start getting yourself ready for that spiritually, and then we'll resource you and help give you some tools and ideas for that starting next weekend. Let's all bow together and pray together. God, there's no accidents here. Everybody's here today, this weekend, for a reason. And so, God, we just first pray for ourselves. Help us not to miss what you're giving. Put us right now, God, in a mode of receptivity to how you would speak and move and inform and direct our paths and our lives. God, we pray for one another. We know we, we come in here, we know people who are hurting. We're, maybe some of us are hurting. God, we, we've got trips coming up or we've got uh, healing needs and medical and health issues. We need clarity about decisions. We need release from addiction or toxic emotions. God, all those requests, we just want to place them by the blood and name of Jesus in, in your presence and ask for your help for your wisdom, for your guidance, and for your mercy. And then, God, as we move toward the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we know it's just an incredible calendar-given opportunity for us to be invitational and to bring some folks with us to church and to help connect them to life in Christ. So we ask you, God, for your favor upon our invitations. And we pray, God, that you would burden us and give us those opportunities to reach out to people and uh, invite them to church. God, right now, we just ask for you to be with us as we open your word to the book of Ezra. In your name we pray, amen and amen. So again, we've been navigating through this incredible Old Testament book of, uh, of Ezra for the past several weeks, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to start in chapter 8, in chapter 8 in just a minute. But to, to kind of set this up, uh, we've been looking at how a group of people were providentially allowed to leave Babylon, where they were in captivity, returned to the promised land and to the capital city of Jerusalem, began rebuilding the temple, the altar, and, uh, and the city of God. And so we're zeroing in on, on this man, Ezra, as we met him and talked about him last week. So this week, we're going to get a, a snapshot of how Ezra does some things that you and I do too. And we're, I want us to look at our deciding, our planning, and our doing. All of us, ha- ha- we have decisions to make, we have plans to execute, uh, we have actions to carry out, things to do. So I want us to look at Ezra in, in the categories of how, how, does he, how does he go about deciding things? How does he go about planning? How does he go about executing and doing certain things? 
Now, when I was thinking about this and sort of what it's typical for us, I want us to think uh, in terms of like some categories, okay? Categories of, that you factor in that you factor in when you make when you make a decision. All right. So so how how if this table represents all the different things that you have to factor in into your deciding, your planning, and your doing, what what kind of stuff goes on the table? All right. So for so for a lot of us, you know, we we start thinking about comfort and, and safety. We start thinking about hey, uh, you know, is this going to make me healthier, or better, or is anybody going to get hurt? We may just ask it that question. I mean, how many of us have excused a dumb decision just by saying, hey, nobody got hurt or anything? But we talk about that and, and we think about that. Uh, for a lot of us, you know, we factor in the money factor. You know, that's a big category of our decision. How much is it going to cost? Could I make money? Could I save some money? All of those kind of things get factored in to ha- how we make decisions and how we execute our lives and, and plans. Some of us, you know, hey, it's all about is it going to be fun? Is it, if it feels good, do it, right? Uh, and we're planning for our pleasure. You know, we're all in some degree or another on a happiness quest. Uh, that, that's a legitimate desire. God put that desire in our hearts. And so we, we factor that in. That's another category for our deciding, our planning, and our doing. Spring break's coming up. Some of you, you know, you're thinking about safety, fun, and money. And that's, that's the factors of what you do over spring break. We also, most of us, you know, we've got a family or we've got friends or we've got people in our lives. So that kind of gets factored into our, how's this going to affect my best friend? How's this going to affect my wife or my husband? Or how would this kind of affect or play it out with, 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 my, with my kiddos or something like that? So all of that's factored into this table uh, of decision making. And then, you know, sometimes we'll throw some prayer in there, right? And a lot of times we're praying that God would keep us safe, let us have fun, protect our family, and help us make money. Amen, right? I mean, that's just sort of how it goes. But th- those are some of like the big buckets, okay, for how we make decisions and, and for how we decide things, plan things, and-, and-, and do things. Now let's go look in God's Word <clears throat> at how Ezra does it. Now, what Ezra chapter 8 does is it kind of zeroes in on what some of the things we talked about last week in Ezra chapter 7. This is a a more in-depth account of Ezra's deciding, his planning, and his doing. And we're going to see a category emerge that's probably not on a lot of our radars. And I, I want to say this, we're going to get a new category that will go on to factor in into our deciding, our planning, and our doing, and I think it's the, the, the big one, because all of us are interested in making good decisions and doing the right thing. All of us are interested in having great plans that come to fruition, and, and so maybe we've got a missing category. So we're going to look for that as we look at Ezra's deciding, his planning, and his doing. These are the family heads and the genealogical records of those who returned with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. And so genealogy is a big deal in the Bible and where people come from. And Ezra does something a little different. His li- there's, a, there's another list on the first wave of exiles that return uh, from Babylon. And we, we read about that and we talked about that. That's found in Ezra chapter 2. Ezra's list is different because he organizes it differently. So I'll show you. Here's what he says. Gershom from Phinehas' descendants, Daniel from Ithmar's descendants, Hattush from David's descendants. Now here's what he does differently than than Ezra chapter 2. He puts at the top of his list two guys he names specifically who are descended directly from Aaron the high priest and then one guy, Hattush, who's descended from David. Now why does he do that? 
And then the rest of his list are 12 family heads. There's significance in the organization of Ezra's list. There's significance in the prioritization of Ezra's list. And and what Ezra is is showing us is by by changing the way this list is organized and contrasting that with Ezra chapter 2 is the importance of worship the importance of, of going back to giving God credit, going back to being a God-centered people as they go to the physical geographic center of God's activity among the world at that time, which is Jerusalem. And Ezra has in mind the promise made to David. And the promise made to David is that the Messiah the king of kings, the one whose kingdom will never, ever end, that we now know is Jesus, the Christ, Jesus from Nazareth, that that promise is being made. And so Ezra is aware that what he's doing, what he's a part of, what he's planning, where he's going, his decision-making apparatus, all of that, he's got to have this in mind, the worship of God, the, the giving God credit, the giving God what he's due and what he's worth, and the fact that the Messiah is going to come, and the Messiah and David's kingdom will never end. So he's got all those things going on, and these promises are made, the 12 family heads, the 12 tribes of Israel, which the 12 apostles connect to that, and that whole concept of 12, and God's promises to God's people. So all of that is in Ezra's mind. Now, I'm sort of looking over here at my table, and I'm like, whew, I'm not sure I have a category for that. I'm not sure when I make decisions, when I, make, when I decide what I'm going to do or make plans, I'm not sure I'm thinking. I mean, this, Ezra's thinking about something that's going to happen after Ezra's dead. But he's like, my, my part in the story is part of a bigger story. So Ezra's list reveals his organization and prioritization Include not only immediate things and urgent things, which all of us, you know, we're good about that, but also ultimate things. Ultimate. Ultimate things like the high priest and the worship of a holy God. Ultimate things like the messianic promise that this temple, that Ezra and this city that Nehemiah helps rebuild, that's the city that Jerusalem, that Jerusalem, that temple is going to be the temple that Jesus uses. That temple is going to be the temple we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The city of Jerusalem is going to be the city that Jesus carries a cross through and dies on a cross to save the world from their sins. And Ezra's got all this concept of the Messiah and the ultimate things of God are going off in his mind. And here's my concern in our busy, what have you done for me lately? What's urgent? What's important? Here's my concern for all of us, for all of us here today. Do we even have a category on our table of how we make decisions for that, that, is, that is ultimate, that includes ultimate? Well, I think we, we're good at superficial, we're good at trivial, we're good at immediate, we're good at what have you done for me lately, we're good at how are you, how's this going to affect you know, my bottom line, we're good as, man, if I have a good time on Friday night, then man, God must be good, we're good with all those kind of things, but do we have a category for, to filter, to make decisions, to make plans, to do things that includes the ultimate? And, and, and listen, 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 listen. You're wired for ultimate. There's, there's something in you. I mean, it gets, kind of gets buried in all this other stuff. But you and I, we're wired for something weightier. We're wired for a story that doesn't end. Now, let me tell you something. 
this story ends. These, most of these things is, are temporary things. Even how we pray, a lot of our prayers are more connected to immediate and urgent than to ultimate. So something's going on with Ezra that doesn't always go on with me. And and, and I'm just kind of going to press in and say, hey, what is it? So then he finishes the genealogy, and we'll skip to uh, verse 15. And now we get a look at, again, more of his decision-making process and how he's going to carry out getting all these people back to the promised land. So we gathered them, all these leaders, at the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there for three days. I searched among the people and the priests, but found no Levites there. Now, we're like, what does that mean? Okay, so the NFL draft's coming up, if you follow the NFL. So if you're like looking at your draft list, and you're, or you're looking at your roster, and you suddenly discover, hey, uh, we don't really have a quarterback, or our quarterback's about to age out, you better draft a quarterback. And that's how the teams are. Like, hey, we're weak in this position. We don't have a pass rusher. We don't have a running back. So they draft that. So Ezra's looking. I can see, I got no Levites on, on my team. And, and that's a problem because his purpose and the destination of getting to Jerusalem is not about getting from A to B. It's getting to A to B and reinstilling the worship and the activity and the ministry going on around the temple. So the Levites are central to that because they've been set apart to God, for God. Their, their tribe has. They've been set apart for that purpose. So you can't play football without a quarterback, especially in the NFL. And you certainly can't worship a holy God, at least in the Old Testament, uh, without the Levites. So he, he says, I summoned the leaders and I sent them to Edo, the leader of Cassivia, with a message for him and his brother. So he goes to another location and he says, look, can you bring us ministers for the house of our God? And, and, and here's the phrase, if you were here last week, this is the repeated phrase of Ezra's life. Since the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah a man of insight from the descendants of Mali, a descendant of, ding, 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 Levi, son of Israel, along with his sons and brothers, 18 men. There were also 220 of the temple servants who had been appointed by David, and we're still talking David here because we've got this link to Jesus who's called the son of David, who's descended from David, and the leaders for the work of the Levites, and all were identified by name. So again, we see this hyper-intentionality that Ezra has in his deciding, his planning, and his doing. And he's, making a, he, he's, he's looking at preparation, and he's making a connection that I, that I hope we can make. Okay, So his connection and preparation is this. He's beginning to connect daily decisions to the destination. He's going to make decisions today, listen, that impacts where he's going to be tomorrow. He's going to make decisions today that impact where God is taking history on into eternity. Because he's focused on what David, he's focused on the Messiah, he, he's hyper-focused that what I do today is part of the story I will tell tomorrow. Man, don't you wish you'd heard that advice on a couple of Friday nights in your history? Or spring break, right? Coming up, young people, right? That the decisions you make today will show up in your story tomorrow. And, and, and so Ezra is like, look, if I'm going to make a decision, 
it's got to be it's got to be about more than just safety and having fun and making some money and, and, and making sure my family's on board. It's got to be about more than that. Where are we going to be? Where is God trying to take us? And so He makes this connection. I mean, think of it like parents. Think of it this way: If you viewed where you want your son or daughter to be when they were 18 and reverse engineered that to today and you began making parenting decisions today on a type of man or woman you want to raise that will ultimately go somewhere around 18 to 22, that would, that's an important decision, right? That would, be a, that would be a strategic way to start thinking about how you talk, how you spend time, how you invest, how you raise, how you discipline, how you empower, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, your son or daughter. So, so what Ezra does is he said, look, God's taking us to Jerusalem. And if we don't have Levites when we get there, we can't really play ball. We can't really do what God's called us to do. So he makes all these connections and he says, I got to make decisions today based on where I'm going to be tomorrow. Or the decisions I make today show up in the story tomorrow. Now, I'll contrast this with a well-known character, especially here as we move into the Easter season, with Judas. So Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of this. 30 pieces of silver. That's, that's, what he, that's what factors in uh, predominantly. There's some other factors too because of, uh, he's called a zealot, right? But uh, 30 pieces of silver. And then Jesus is killed. Jesus is crucified on the cross. And look what it says. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned to die, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders and says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. What's he saying? I wish... I had a bigger, I wish I had a different filter for decision making than just money. I, I, I did some, I mean, this was all I was concerned about, the shiny pieces of silver. And so I wish there was another filter, another factor that I could have made my decision and not have betrayed innocent blood. And I, and I wonder, I, I, I'm not going to call anybody in here today Judas, but how many of us have made a decision Simply because it was fun or it felt good. And then the story we told six years later or six minutes later or six days later was, oh, I wish I had factored something else in but fun. I, I, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. I wish I had been more concerned about something. Or how many of us had made a decision? And, and, it was, and money was the name of the game. And, and, as, and, and, then, and then later on was like, oh. Gosh, I've lost more than I've gained. And I wish I could go back and rewind. And I wish there was something else on my decision-making table in my decision-making grid because of the story I'm telling today. So again, I'll submit, Ezra, there's something else that we really, I really haven't been able to describe yet. We're going to get there. That I really haven't been able to describe yet. But there's something else that's, that's factored into Ezra's deciding, his planning, and his doing. And it really comes to a head in the next three or four verses in, in chapter 8, verse 21. And let's look at this. So they're here at the Ahava River, and Ezra says, okay, I'm going to proclaim a fast. So I'm gonna, we're going to abstain from eating. Now, let's start scratching our heads because we're, we, we, we all like to rely on common sense, okay? Now, if you're going to travel six to 900 miles, it's roughly closer to 900 than 600, depending on where, where you consider they started from, is that a day to take a fast? 
It starts, you're withholding food and nourishment from your body, and your body's going to have to pretty much walk a pretty good distance. Is that, so it starts to say, Ezra, what are you doing? Something, you know, Ezra, I just don't think that's good for your body. I mean, we just start to think, there's something else on the table of Ezra's deciding, his planning, and his doing. And what is it? But it, but it continues. So that we might humble ourselves before God... And ask him for a safe journey for us. So, okay, so we're going to pray and humble ourselves. That's check. That sounds pretty positive. But, but think about humility. I mean, isn't this the time you give the big motivational win one for the Gipper speech? And you can do it. And you can get her done. And I believe in you. Isn't that where you give that speech and start of saying, we can't. And we need, we're humble. And we need, we need something. We need God. I mean, it's like, Ezra, what's going This is so countercultural what he's doing. But we want a safe journey for us and our dependents and all our possessions. And listen, this gets even better or worse, whichever perspective you see it through. I did this because I was ashamed. I was sort of embarrassed. I was afraid of being judged because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from enemies during the journey. But, whoa, Ezra, you could have had an armed escort. I mean, and they're, they're carrying, we're going to see it in a minute, they're carrying loads of gold and silver. And, and going through these, this area, where they were ripe for robbers and raiders and kind of pirating going on. So, Ezra, you're responsible for the lives of 1,750 or so people, to making a, you know, about a 900-mile trip, and the king's giving you everything. I mean, daddy's got his checkbook open. He's like, how much? And you just can tell him, and he's going to say yes. And, and, and you didn't ask him for an armed escort, Ezra? You need to have your head examined. What kind of what was in the Kool-Aid you just drank, Edra? Come on. But but here's why I didn't ask. Since I had told the king, the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, all who depend upon him, all who go hard after him, all who are committed to worshiping him. But his fierce anger, fierce anger, God gets angry. Are against all those who abandon him. So we fasted and pleaded with our God about this. Now, I, I'm going to label these, these couple of verses inexplicable, Ezra. Because if I am making decisions the way you and I normally make decisions, or you know, around these couple of big categories here, I can't explain why you fast before you go on a long journey. Because you need your physical... I mean, that, that, that's like... Hey, take care of yourself. Take care of your body, right? I, I, I can't explain the, the humility when we really need a pep talk to make us feel like we can do it, right? I can't explain why he would. This is a big one. Why would he not ask for a police escort? And, and the emotion of shame. And, and that shame is he is concerned about, listen, he's concerned about God's reputation. He doesn't want to make God look bad by being less dependent upon God. And so he humbles himself and says, I'm ashamed. I don't, I, I don't want to make God look bad. And I am willing to risk, quote unquote, in the world's eyes, I'm willing to risk the safety of the 1,750 or so of us in order to not make God look bad. So I want to submit that Ezra's... Not really concerned about, much about money. 
That, that even the safety of his friends and, and all these people with him is secondary to, their, to, this, to this thing. I, I, I want to submit it's not about you know, comfort and safety. It's not about, hey, does it feel good? Can we have fun? And, and even the way he prays is different than the way most of us pray. Because he's not praying about these things. I, I'm going to submit that there was a big, weighty, decision-making grid for Ezra's deciding, planning, and doing. And I'm going to submit it was the glory of God. That Ezra was concerned about God getting recognized as this glorious, gracious, amazing, infinite, holy, pure, worthy God. And and, and the glory of God is the concept that, that, that I think Ezra has in his mind and has in his heart. I don't want to decide anything. I don't want to plan anything. I don't want to do anything that would make God look less glorious than he actually is. See, Ezra gets something about himself. Ezra realizes that he's made in the image of God. That's in Genesis. Ezra gets that he's like a telescope. That when people look at Ezra, and this is true for Christ followers, when people look at us, they ought to get a snapshot of who God is by seeing us, watching us. How do we spend our money? How do we make decisions? How how do we pursue fun? How do we pursue joy? Everybody's pursuing it. How do we, as Christ followers? And so Ezra realizes, look, if I'm a mirror that people look at me to get a reflection of God, or if I'm a telescope and people look through my life and I'm supposed to try to make uh, God look more like he is, right? I don't want to make that. I don't want people to look through a blurry, broken telescope. I, I, I don't want to be, you know, a stained, nasty, broken mirror. I want to reflect God to the king. So I'm ashamed to ask for that escort. And so I'll fast and humble myself and pray and plead because we want God to look glorious. What's the glory of God? The glory of God is simply this. It's the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that God is. The greatness, the beauty, and perfection of all that God is. And, and I, would even, I would even submit that we, when we use the word holy, holy really means other. Like there's not a category that I can put God into. I, I, he, he's just, there's no comparison to God. And, and so God's glory is like a weight it's like this heavy, it's a rock, right? It's mass, and it just displaces everything. And so God's glory is what Ezra is subordinating. His, he's praying for God's glory. He's pleading. It's all motivated for God's glory more than his own safety, more than his own comfort, more than his own pleasure. It's this glory of God that has taken up weight in the soul of Ezra. And so Ezra has a completely different filter category from his doing, his deciding, and his planning. Because he wants to make God look like God actually is. So, so let's get our brains for just a minute and our hearts for a minute around the glory of God. Because again, we, we don't walk around with this, you know, we, we, God's my friend, God's my savior, uh, God's maybe the man upstairs, God's distant, I'm not sure who God is. We need to get in touch with this understanding of the weight of God's glory. So let's, let's look at creation. So here's what Isaiah says. 
says, who has measured, and he, the only way to describe God is to use metaphors and analogies that our mind can comprehend. That's the only way we can describe God. Because God is infinite, we're finite. So we're limited by language. Listen to me. We're limited by language in our ability to describe God. So, so here's, here's what Isaiah says. He says, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or who's marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Well, God has. God God has, and so he's talking about the ocean. So do do this tonight if you're going to take a shower, bath, wash your face, shave, whatever you're going to do. Try to hold water in the palm of your hand. Eventually, it just sort of leaks out. And here's what Isaiah, and and, you know, back in Isaiah's day, they would drink water by this a lot. You know, sometimes it would spill. Here's what he's saying. God's got the Pacific Ocean in his hand. And, and, you know, you've measured stuff, you know, you've done the finger. Do. God's measured the heavens with his hand. So he says in creation, that's how, that's the only thing I can compare God to. And it still doesn't do God justice. So we look at creation and we get that image of God. And, and then we can go to, to this Messiah Jesus that Ezra is preparing for him. Remember, he's connecting his day-to-day to the destination of the Messiah coming into the world. But let's, let's go all the way to the throne room of heaven in Revelation. So this is kind of what's going on in heaven. And here's here's the beautiful thing of it. They're praising Jesus. They call him a lamb because he was the sacrificial lamb who took our place, died in our place on the cross. So worthy. It's all about worship. Giving God the glory, the weight that he's due. It's all about worship. Is the lamb who was slaughtered. Now, here's my question. Keep going. To receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And And then it says, and then I heard every creature in heaven on earth. And under the earth and in the sea. And what were they saying? Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Here's my question. Why does Jesus appear slaughtered in heaven? Why does Jesus appear slaughtered in heaven? That doesn't sound perfect so much, does it? Unless we need to be reminded of the perfection of God's love and mercy. So in heaven, I'm going to see, a cru- look to the crosses in your venue, I'm going to see a slaughtered Jesus and be reminded of the depths of his love. That those hands that hold the waters of the Pacific Ocean were the same hands that were nailed to the cross in my place so I can even have a relationship with God. That's glorious. That, that I don't have words for that. And Ezra says, I've got to make every decision. I've got to make every plan. I've got to do things that accord, that align with the glorious God who's put his gracious hand upon me. That's powerful. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Now, listen, 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 listen. Getting this glory is not about getting the facts necessarily right. See, we we make Christianity about a couple of rules and some facts. Jesus was born of a virgin. Yeah, I believe that. Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, I believe that. Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, I believe that. Hey, there's, there's some rules we need to follow. Okay, I'll do my best. But, but, but it's about seeing God's glory. Christ following Jesus is about seeing God's glory. Look, look here, look here. I'm going to put some verses together from 2 Corinthians. 
they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. All of us who have had that veil removed, so it's like we walk around, we can't see. We walk around, and the glory of God is hidden from us. We walk around, we get the glory of money. We walk around, we get the glory of a good time. We walk around, and we like, yeah, I got to be safe, and, 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 I, and I, the glory of relationships, and God, help me with all these things. So there's a veil. But when that veil is removed, it's not just about getting the facts of Christmas and Easter right. It's about understanding and appreciating the glory of God which transcends and displaces all of these other lesser, lesser glories. And sometimes the glory of God wrecks your life in a beautiful way. And so he says, when that veil is removed, now what can I do? I can see and reflect. That's what, that's what Ezra's doing. I am reflecting the glory of the Lord. I don't want to fog up. I don't want to give the world a foggy mirror or a broken mirror. I don't want to be a default and defective telescope. I want to make decisions. I want to make plans. I want to carry out actions where people get the glory of God. So I want to start right there and let's look at the gospel. Let's look at this good news that Paul is talking about. The glorious light of the good news. What is that? I'll use some words. Let's start with an R. It's the revelation of Jesus. Not Jesus a man. Not Jesus a good teacher. Not Jesus who actually lived around the first century in modern day Israel. Jesus as the son of God. Jesus as the king of kings. Jesus as the savior who came to reconcile us back to God. You know what our sin is? Our sin is we fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus comes to reconcile and he has to pay for our, he has to redeem us. He has to buy us back. He has to buy us out of slavery. He has to buy, uh, pay our sin debt that we owe to a holy God. So he dies on a cross. And then we have to rely upon him. We don't remove our sins. We aren't good enough or righteous enough. We rely on Jesus for sin removal. We rely on Jesus for the perfect righteousness that we need to have to be in the presence of a holy God. And because he's resurrected and reigning and ruling, we have assurances that Jesus is the Son, is the King, is the Lord, is the Savior, and that we can, in fact, rely upon him. When, we, when this hits us, when this glory hits our soul, when this glory comes into crystallization and clarity in our minds, in our hearts, in the eyes of our soul, then we're ready to respond. And we believe in this Jesus, dead buried and raised. We accept his gift of forgiveness and new life. We give Jesus the steering wheel of our lives. We switch from living by, for myself to living by his spirit and living for his glory. And then our lives becomes an expression of love to God who first loved us because we obey God no matter what. And we begin deciding, planning, and doing like Ezra. And it's all about what is going to make God look like God really is, which is glorious. And then what he does as a leader who loves the glory of God, listen to this. He says, I selected 12 of the leading priests and 10 of their brothers. I weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the article. So the king, Artaxerxes, gives them a bunch of stuff to journey back and rebuild the temple. So he gives them just a bunch of, of, of money. 
the contribution for the house of our God that the king, his counselors, his leaders, and all the Israelites who were present had offered. And, and he, he weighed them out. There's 24 tons of silver, silver articles weighing 7,500 pounds, 7,500 pounds of gold, 20 gold bowls worth 1,000 gold coins, and two articles of fine gleaming bronze as valuable as gold. So that's what they got to take back. And then he's, he's going to appoint some people. This is what I want us to see. He's going to appoint some people to kind of guard this and account, be the accountants for it, make sure nothing happens to it, make sure it all gets to the temple in Jerusalem. And I want us to look at how he motivates them. Now, now let's think about it. If we give you a sacred assignment, right, an important assignment, we, can use, we might use threats and fear. Hey, you better not mess this up, right? And we've done that. And, we, and sometimes think that's, that's, how, that's, that's how we should motivate people. Or we'll dangle a carrot and talk, talk about a prize and talk about, hey, if you get there safely, you know, mommy's going to buy you this or daddy will get you this. You know, and we, we use threats. We use rewards. We use carrot. We use stick. All those kind of things. We use, hey, all, hey don't, you don't want to look bad. You don't want to mess this up. <coughs> look what the leader Ezra, the leader Ezra, who is driven by the weight, the glory, the heaviness of who God is. Look what Ezra says to the people. He says, I said to them, here's his motivational speech. You are holy to the Lord. You are set apart to God. You are to live for the otherness of God. And what captures God's otherness is the weight of his glory. That's what should motivate you. That's what should inspire you to have integrity, to be good stewards, to get this stuff back to the house of God. And the articles, all this stuff's holy. It's set apart for God. The silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, God of your fathers. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the Lord's house in Jerusalem. So here's my question. What if you saw your life, your parenting, your job, your participation in this church, if this is your church, what if you saw your marriage? What if you saw every word you spoke? What if you saw your attitude and you said, it is, it is to be set apart wholly to the Lord, to give God glory. Suddenly our lives are no longer superficial and trivial. Suddenly we don't walk around, mm, God. Oh, God will forgive everybody. God, nobody's perfect. God understands. Oh, glory's at stake. Glory's at stake. See, see, listen, listen, listen. When we get God's glory, or rather we're gripped by it, we'll have the motivation and the means to be the people Jesus died and rose again for us to become. It, suddenly it's no longer about keeping a couple of rules. S suddenly, it, you know, our, our lives take on a lot more weight, don't they? And significant that we're not here just playing some game, consuming some oxygen, trying to have a great life expectancy and praying social security's there when we get there. It's about the weight of a glorious God who can put the Pacific Ocean in his hands and then put his hands on a cross for us. <coughs> so we fasted and pleaded with our God. And he granted our request. Everything. They got back, they got to the temple in Jerusalem. Everything was verified by number and weight. And the total weight was recorded at that time. We didn't lose anything. We didn't lose anything. Because God is looking for men and women and churches 
where his glory is safe. Every single one of you, listen to me. You are here to reflect glory. Not the glory of money. Not the glory of a good time. Not just the glory of your great relationships. Not the glory of, I played it safe and made it to 95. But the glory of God. So would you make a commitment just to consider His glory in everything you do? And to connect everything you do to His glory? This is my prayer. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Don't, 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 listen, listen. There, there's a temptation here. I want to speak against it before I pray, okay? Some of you have already discounted what I said. Because you know what you're saying? <laughs> Matt, I'm just a shift worker. Or... I'm at, I'm middle-aged, and, and I've missed it. I've missed it. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. Jesus didn't hang six hours on a cross for you to miss anything. See the hands that can hold the Pacific Ocean. See the hands that took the nails and make a commitment. From this day forward, whether I eat or drink, whatever I do, I'll do everything. For God's glory. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we just need, um, need your weight. Need you to help us sense, feel, appreciate, value, appraise the glory of God correctly. God, our key sin is we're glory thieves, glory robbers. We're dysfunctional when it comes to glory. Forgive us right now, Jesus. And God, I pray that this church and everybody here listening, because your spirit's here, I pray, God, we get a passion, a zeal, a hunger, a thirst to live for your glory. Whether it's our, our, the words we speak, the way we spend our, your money, our jobs, how we're raising our kids, how we're doing our marriage, how we're planning our vacations, whether we eat or drink, Whatever we do, everything we do, do it all. We do it all for your glory. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.